right? Uh, today is the end of church history as we know it. Um, might be a little bit dramatic, but uh, no one else found that funny, so we'll move on. Um, mega churches is what we're dealing with today, uh, and so we're just briefly going to kind of cover um, a fairly modern phenomenon in the world, and there's a good reason for that. Um, mega churches, how would you guys define a mega church? What do you think that th- sets uh, a, just a larger church off from something considered a mega church? Would you put a number on it, or is it an attitude? What, what do you think? There are big Catholic churches. I don't know. Um, simply be, that's a really good question. So, in one sense that we'll talk about, the Catholic church is the mega church, right? And so that all, a lot of these other mega churches are just like mini Catholic churches. As I've said before, they're just doing it worse. Um, in some cases, they're actually doing it better, but they, they don't have as nice of vestments. So that's certainly true. Um, but there is a sense in which the Catholic church is the mega church, uh, and we'll see that that's, that sounds like it's kind of an odd way to put it, but the way in which these churches go about um, assigning numbers to their attendance, it's not really all that far off. So that's not a bad answer, Jimmy. Um, what I, Somebody else said something, and I, I missed it. Okay, so we got 2,000. 2,000 is about the number that I kind of consistently hear as the, the sort of cutoff for what is considered just a very, very large church and then a mega church. I don't know if you get like a, a plaque sent to you when you clip over from 1990 to like 2001. Um, I hope that they do. That'd be kind of fun. Uh, but um, anyone want to tell me when the first mega church came about? What's that? Well, yeah, so Billy Graham had a... Um, we, we can talk about that because that's, that's a good data point. Billy Graham didn't have a church, and so his evangelistic meetings, he had thousands and thousands of people coming for those. Um, you know, he was filling stadiums, so you would get twenty to 30 to 50,000 people coming for those, but those weren't really churches. Those were gatherings of people, um, so there has to be some sort of, like, organizational center, and Whitfield would have done the same back in the day. He would have had, you know, tens of thousands of people coming to hear him, but those weren't collective churches, so that's, a, that's another good, good guess. Anybody else want to take a stab? Okay, we're going to talk about Schuler's Crystal Cathedral. That was formed in the, the early 60s. The actual Crystal Cathedral wasn't, um, we'll talk about it, but that was finished, I think, in 1981. Um, any, other, any other stabs? That's not quite the earliest one. The earliest, uh, no, that wasn't her name. There was one other who had, a, she had, like, it was a, a three-name kind of thing. It wasn't just two names. I can't remember what, but she connected to the Pentecostal church. She, she began to pastor, and she had, she had probably the first mega church in America, although we're not going to really talk about her today, because that, that's a phenomenon a little bit separate from the way in which the mega churches of today have been formed, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, so that would be the first modern church. So we talked about Spurgeon's church. So it's interesting that the first really modern mega church was, was done by somebody that we would hold and revere as just a fantastic preacher and pastor. 
Um, so we, I have very little to say about Charles Spurgeon, which isn't exemplary. Um, and, and sometimes for churches of our size and for churches of our uh, uh, disposition, mega churches like spelled with four letters sometimes. And so um, we, we view these things as, as not like the epitome of what a good church would be, but Spurgeon built a church in the middle of London that seated 5,000 people with room for 6,000 standing room, okay? So easily within the, and, and it wasn't like he built that and then only 500 people showed up on Sunday. He built it and 5,500 people were showing up constantly. So um, that would be by far the first modern mega church. The oldest one is likely from the book of Acts, which again tells us that these things are not all bad. Um, at the end of, of the book of Acts, um, not the end, sorry, at the beginning of the book of Acts, the end of the second chapter, um, we read after Peter's Pentecost sermon, um, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. So if they baptized them and they added them that day, that puts that as a megachurch, right? So the very first church that we have was a megachurch. Spurgeon's church is a megachurch. Um, we, we oftentimes talk negatively about megachurches, but frankly, um, they're not all bad. Um, and, and I want to talk about a lot of the, the good things that we can pull from them as well. Um, but there's sort of a, if we're just talking about them in terms of population, um, then yeah, we can talk about Spurgeon, we can talk about some of these other gatherings of the church, but really, truly, the, the modern sort of movement where we can um, pick out particularities of the churches that became these massive over 2,000 attendee sort of churches um, really does start in the 60s, and it doesn't take ground really until the 70s and then really hits its stride in the 80s and 90s. Um, and there's a lot of similarities. Even though these churches are quite different in temperament, there's a lot of similarities between them. So we start with a guy um, who lived in Illinois, was sent out by the Reformed Church of America to California, to Grove City, uh, excuse me, to Garden Grove, um, California, an area uh, that was as we're going to find in almost every single one of these situations, it was rapidly, rapidly growing. Um, he started in 1961 by having what he called a drive-in church. And so um, there was a normal church service happening inside, but outside, people were able to drive up in their cars so that they didn't have to come inside the church building. Um, in the comfort of their cars, they could hear the music and they could hear the message. And then it literally was like a drive-up movie theater only without the projection, right? You just heard everything that was going on. Um, I don't know if it was like a separate speaker or one of those FM transmitters or something like that, but they, they allowed that to happen um, as a way of making it more comfortable for them. Um, and it was Robert Schuler, and uh, he hadn't built the Crystal Cathedral yet. This was, he was doing these things in like um, old car dealerships and stuff like that. Um, but his, he, he went about uh, building his church in a particular way, and that, this is kind of the, the changing of, of the guard with how churches were going to do their business. And, and 
what he wanted to do, that, that idea of making everything as comfortable as he possibly could for people, um, was something we call the attractional model or seeker-sensitive model, and um, he, he did it well. Um, by 1964, uh, Billy Graham, uh, speaking of Billy Graham, had visited him and uh, heard him preach and said, uh, Billy, said to Robert that he should, he should do TV. Um, and so Robert Schuler took Billy Graham's advice and started what? Does anybody know the name of the program? It's a great name, by the way. Yeah, Rick, why do you know so much? Do we need to talk? Brother, you know, you're, you're like, oh, you're on this Robert Schuler thing. Power of positive thinking. Um, yeah, so he started the Hour of Power, which is a great name, by the way. I love that name. Um, but it was Schuler, so it kind of gets ruined. Um, and uh, he started to promote himself and his teaching online, or not online, it was the 80s. Uh, I don't know when Al Gore made the internet. That's a little bit young for him. So um, he started to promote these things on, on television, and um, it came to be very quickly the largest church in America. And for those people who were kind of coming up in the preaching ranks, if you got a chance to preach at the Crystal Cathedral, you kind of made it. By the way, the Crystal Cathedral, I don't think is doing too well anymore. I think that they are like 20-some million dollars in debt, and um, their, their attendance has dwindled, and we'll talk about why those things are the case. But nevertheless, um, 81 was when that was actually built. And um, in a lot of ways, if you paid attention to what was going on in the Crystal Cathedral, it was really pretty traditional. So they sang traditional hymns. Um, apparently the organ that was in there, that they, they did the whole organ thing when they played music, uh, had 17,000 pipes for this organ, which is fantastic. Um, a little bit more expensive than we would, we would probably care for, but uh, next budget, uh, you're gonna have to veto it. So, um, but the music was really traditional. What wasn't traditional was his preaching. And what he started to do was, although he was in the RCA, the Reformed Church of America, which wasn't super liberal at that time, he started to move away from it and basically baptized Norman Vincent Peale's idea of the power of positive thinking and self-esteem. Schuler said really ridiculous things like Jesus Christ was self-esteem incarnate and stuff like that, which is just a, a ridiculous statement. So um, this is a way of keeping the, the music traditional, but then changing the message. The other kind of startup for mega churches was done by a guy named Chuck Smith. And Chuck Smith um, was, again, a very buttoned-down kind of guy. And in 1965, so this is during the, the sort of hippie movement, right, and, and the Jesus movement, um, he ends up being introduced to this guy named Lonnie Frisbee. And Lonnie is... Um, one of the, the leaders of the Jesus movement, which was a movement uh, amongst sort of um, the hippie people of California, where a lot of them were being moved into Christianity. And um, he met him and basically allowed him, basically absorbed him into the church. And so uh, Chuck would get up and he would preach in a suit. He would preach verse by verse through things um, in kind of the same traditional way, but a lot of the rest of the service he handed over to Lonnie Frisbee and to 
the hippies, okay? So that was the, the removal kind of of the organ music and the traditional music of the church as they, they knew it, and the start of things like bringing guitars and drums and um, long-haired freaky people singing songs about how much they love Jesus. Uh, and from this started, um, I believe it was... Uh, this was specifically, I can't think of the name of it. Calvary Chapel was started from this. Um, this is, was this, the church's name was Calvary Chapel. And if you look on the list of like the largest churches in America, you're going to find Calvary Chapels listed a number of times. Um, this is where Maranatha music started from. And so this was, again, the sort of switch that we find where Schuler revolutionized the preaching by making everything seeker-sensitive through the adaption of the message, but not the adaption of the external things. Chuck Smith and John Wimber was um, going to be part of this as well, and the start of the Vineyard Churches in California, um, who Lonnie Frisbee also helped to form, are going to adapt it in a different direction. Now, sometimes it is going to be an adaptation of the preaching and the message, but quite often it's an adaptation of the way in which church is done and the way in which they present themselves. And so it's going to be highly focused on music, highly focused on a welcoming atmosphere, a very low-key atmosphere where people feel welcome and they don't feel out of place. Um, and uh, by doing this in strategic locations, and they were, don't be confused by this, this, didn't, this wasn't like um, happenstance that these things happened. These were all happening in places where there was rapid growth and very few churches. So what happens is when you have a place that has rapid growth, so in L.A., right, they're growing basically out into the desert where no one's living anymore in the early 60s. Um, if you plant a church and you get people to come to it, when new people come in, they don't have a place to go, but they, they talk to people and this is the place they're going right? That's one of the reasons why these megachurches just bloomed, because they went to a place where no one was, where people were flocking to, and they didn't have a church home, and this was just an easy thing. It was an easy place to go. John Wimber um, meets uh, Frisbee in 1980, asks him to preach um, at an evening service, is kind of taken up with him. Uh, he eventually starts vineyard churches. Um, vineyard churches will also have a number of churches that make the list of, of largest churches in America. <clears throat> and um, they begin vineyard music. And what, that's the other thing you're going to find. We talked about music. Almost all these like, churches, if they're collected together, have their own like, music brand. Okay? So you've got... Um, uh, What's his church's name? Elevation Music in, in North Carolina. Um, what, uh, what's his name, Doug? Um, Furtick. So I knew you knew because you listened to him all the time. So um, Stephen Furtick has Elevation Music. They all seem to want to do their own like music thing. Um, but f at least Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard Churches were busy planting other churches. So they were not just um, busy trying to build their own they were busy planting other churches. So collectively, between Calvary Chapel and Vineyard, they've planted over 4,000 churches around the world, uh, which isn't, isn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. Um, not all that they did was good, but at the very least, that was good. Um, but then we get into two of probably the best-known 
megachurches. If you were a megachurch in the 90s, uh, if you thought of a megachurch in the 90s and the early 2000s, what's, what two churches did you likely think of? Willow Creek is one, and Saddleback is the other. Bill Hybels started Willow Creek. Um, actually, it was Bill Hybels and another bloke, but that other bloke got kind of removed for sexual issues in like 1979, and then they, they didn't talk about him anymore, right? He was the Bruno of um, uh, Willow Creek, and so they just never talked about him anymore. Um, Bill Hybels was a... Um, I almost said a failed businessman, but he wasn't a failed businessman. He was a businessman. His parents owned a, a car dealership or something like that. I can't remember what they owned. And um, he, he like talked repeatedly about this um, spiritual discontentment that he had that people around him were dying and not knowing the Lord. And so he was going to do everything he could to get them to, to know the Lord and to take the message to him. <clears throat> and what he is really famous for was setting up his church to run like a business. Like, it was very business-oriented. So his background is in business. He talks about it quite a lot, if you listen to especially older sermons of his. Um, he talks about he was in business administration, and he was in business management as majors. This was his life. This was what he did. When he came in to control the church, this is what he did. Um, he talked about the pastor being a CEO, uh, that sort of model of the way in which you manage and run a church. Um, he, he brought in with him the idea of um, vision statements, right? So you, you cast a vision for your people, and then they, they sort of run with it, and everything is taken captive to this vision, this, this like one-sentence thing that is everything that you're supposed to do. Um, he also set up leadership conferences, so that's one thing Schuler did as well. Schuler basically said, do you want to know how to grow a major church? Come out and join me, and I will show you how to do this. Hybels did the same thing, right? This was part of, of Hybels' shtick, was we're going to train leaders, but he trained leaders like he trained businessmen. It was just a seminar that you had to take, and, and you kind of learned that way. Um, they were on the outside of Chicago, um, and by uh, at least the late 90s, they were the largest church in America, uh, without much doubt. They were the largest church in America. Um, out of all the churches on this list, that is the only church that I've ever actually been at, and it wasn't great. Um, so uh, one of the things you're going to find is that, that these churches are going out of their way, and we said to be attractional, and that is to make people feel as comfortable as possible. And one of the things that they're doing to make people as comfortable as possible is making it feel as little like church as possible. Like, they wanted church without church. So they set up a coffee bar outside. So the whole atmosphere was meant to feel like a coffee shop that had just gone on steroids, right? So it was like the largest coffee shop in the world um, that people would come. It would be these sort of informal chats. So there's the removal of the pulpit, right? So you don't really have a pulpit anymore. Um, this is going to sound ironic from what I'm about to say, but they would sit on stools and, and do their preaching. Uh, they would, they would um, not be wearing suits. They, they, would, they would want the, the, the informality of it to be highlighted so that people would feel comfortable coming as they are off the streets. Um, and so when we were there, part of it was, you know, there were, uh, Bree and I had lived in Chicago the first year that we were married, and we're like, well, we should, we should go there once while we're here just to see what it's like. And um, they're running multiple church services, so I think Willow Creek itself sat 
the auditorium sat eight, eight to 9,000 people or something like that. And then there's like this flip over that happens in between. So they're packing it out two or three times, I think. Um, and when we walked in there, and given eight, 9,000 people there, um, and I might be wrong on that, but, but you know, your eyes are gonna lay, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna follow and see several hundred people walking in and out. And there were two people that we saw carrying Bibles, Bree and myself, and there was no one else. And I think that that's also a part of it. They want it to be as unchurchy as possible. So they, they, it was just this, this really um, informal gathering of like a shared idea and, and some really excellent, excellent music. Um, that was kind of Heibel's intention behind it. Um, he, he grew his church really well doing that. Um, they did a survey. Um, this, was, this happened in the early 2000s where they wanted to see where their people were. Um, and in his own words, he found out that Willow Creek was a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, basically, they were attracting a huge number of people, but they weren't moving them along in the faith at all. Because um, they offered these other classes, they offered other things, but, but people weren't growing in the Lord, and they weren't deepening their knowledge of God. And so um, I think that they tried to adjust that, but they didn't do it well. Um, Hybels also came under fire in 2018. This is also a phenomenon in these larger churches because of the way that authority works, um, where he was accused of sexual misconduct in um, 2018. The church denied it, um, and he denied it. But he was on an age anyway, and so he decided that he was going to retire. But um, in the months after he was accused of that, more and more reports came out where it became very, very difficult for them to keep denying these things. And eventually there was um, just this acknowledgement that he was, he was committing these sorts of affronts. Um, and the church wasn't able or knowledgeable to do anything about it. Uh, we'll talk about why megachurches are kind of given over to that in a couple of minutes. Uh, Rick Warren, um, who has never been accused of anything like that. We should be thankful for Rick Warren, at least for that, because he, a lot of these guys fall into these sorts of traps, and Rick Warren seems to be exemplary in his personal life, according to everyone. So he made approximately a gazillion dollars off of purpose-driven life, Right? And now he's got purpose-driven puppies and purpose-driven everything. Like that guy, you know, the, the publisher looked at him and was like, how many purposes can we find to be driven about? And he's like 13 at least. So, um, but he, he stopped taking a salary from them. He, he refused to take a salary from Saddleback after he started making this money. Um, he gave a lot of his money away. So he's exemplary. But he did kind of the same thing. Saddleback was not a mistake, he was living in Dallas at the time, and he did demographic studies of the country. He wanted to plant a church, and he found that in Orange County, a segment of Orange County was the fastest-growing segment of Orange County in the fastest-growing county in America. And he said, that's where I'm going to plant my church. And they did demographic studies, and you can, um, he came up with the traits of like the average person that they could attract and those are the people that they're going to work on attracting. And it was a highly educated, kind of skeptical, somebody who is very secure in themselves, somebody who is very secure in their job, who is, um, who is very highly accomplished and well-educated and, and uh, married with kids. And so 
uh, he had this sort of picture of the person that he was going to go after, and, and man, he, he got him with, with spades. Like, he, he just he, he grew in a heartbeat. Um, and I think that they were averaging at, at their peak. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I think it was well into the 30s, if not the 40s or the 50,000 worth of, of people coming. Um, now, Rick Warren, um, SPC has got a bit of a, an issue going with him right now um, because he basically has accepted uh, female pastors, but that's neither here nor there. Um, his church grew rapidly because they were doing these, these sorts of things, okay, the, the sort of attractional model. We've talked about some of those, but they all kind of have that in common, okay? Um, these are the things that are really common with all of these churches, first of all. They focus a lot on entertainment and, and focus a lot on minimizing the formality of what's going on. So um, when we talk about the music, the music is meant to be entertaining because they want to keep people's attention, and they focus a lot of time and a lot of effort on that. But there's something else with the music as well. The music isn't just entertaining, but it's modern. It, it, it is not to sound much different than the music that you're going to hear on the radio and not just the Christian radio, on any pop radio. And that is not without its intention. The intention is, again, to make people feel as normal and comfortable as they can sitting in the pews, or especially in these places, they're not going to have pews, sitting in their very, very comfortable seats, okay? Um, it is meant to take the formality of the pulpit and erase it, um, to give very practical sermons, very evangelistic sermons to people. Um, it is meant to entertain them, as we've said, uh, to give them uh, very low bars to cross for membership, um, which is important because when we talk about megachurches, these churches are oftentimes not concerned at all to tell you how many members they have, but they are very concerned to tell you how many people are in attendance, okay? So, um, if you go to a lot of these churches, their membership, the way in which they do membership, is super low-key. You basically, hey, if you want to be a member, um, you know, we, we were at a church in, in, oh, we did visit another mega church. sorry. When we were in Colorado in 2020, uh, we were staying with somebody who was a pastor of a campus of a megachurch who we knew from Louisville and the megachurch he was at in Louisville, and um, their, their church actually had a thing at the beginning of it that said, do you want to be a member of our church? Uh, great, consider yourself a member. We don't put much stock in that. Um, so that, that is maybe a lower bar than most, but that is pretty much how they want to run things because they want people to feel unencumbered, right? So almost every, every blockade that they would have to coming in is they're trying to remove them. And of course, what the demographics have said is they attract a junk ton of people, but they eject a junk ton of people too, because there's nothing to actually keep them there. And we'll talk about that when we talk about millennials and stuff like that. Very attractional, um, looking as much like the world around them as they possibly can in good senses and bad. Um, solitary leaders. Now, they might have elder boards, but each one of these churches is generally known of by the preacher who's preaching. And while this could indeed be considered a good thing, or, or maybe not a good thing, it's at least a normal thing, right? Metropolitan Tabernacle was known for Char Charles Spurgeon. And so there's, there's a sense in which you're not going to get away from that. 
because um, there's typically going to be one guy who's doing the preaching, and so there's, it's, it's hard to, to not have the focus on that. But where we see that kind of bleeding over from something that we would normally understand as, a, as an occurrence that happens in the world to where they are pushing for this idea of celebrity is when they start planting churches. And when you look at the list, if you go on Wikipedia and you know you're getting the best information on Wikipedia because anyone can change it at any point in time. So, but for, for things like this, Wikipedia is, is all right. They've got a listing of those churches, and they not only list the attendance of those churches, they also list the other campuses of those churches. And so what's going on in a number of these places is that they are planting what they call churches, but what those churches are are just places where you can have music playing and then a satellited-in message from the main guy at the main campus. And this is where they are a lot like, if not exactly like, the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church doesn't beam in the Pope to every single congregation, but they consider themselves one church. These churches are doing exactly that. They consider themselves one church in many locations, but they don't have individuals preaching in those individual locations. Rather, they have one guy who's doing it. And the thing that makes me a little irksome about that is it, it becomes at some level no longer about the word being preached but it's about the man who's preaching the word, right? So if you plant a church and you're going to consider that to be another church, then let somebody who is there preach the word. If it's the word that does the work, if, it's, if you're going to commit yourselves to that, then, then allow the word to do the work. But instead, it becomes this sort of celebrity cultish following around the person who happens to be preaching, um, this happens at almost every major church, but it is especially true in those who are planting multiple campuses kind of collectively under one church umbrella. Um, and this happens all the time. Um, this is kind of the way in which these things normally occur now um, because one of the things that's attracting people to the church isn't just those external comforts being dropped down, but it is the guy who's doing the preaching, okay? Um, at some level, again, that's, that's not something that we can really control. Um, but when it comes to doing that and sort of satelliting it out, it is something that we can control. Um, let's see. The other problem with the pastors being like that is that it becomes really hard to know those pastors. So the, the gentleman who's doing the preaching, um, you, you're not, you have 0% you have chance of knowing him unless you're there for 15, 20 years and you've moved your ranks up in service right? You've, you've got no chance of knowing your pastor. Um, you can call me up, and you can come in, and you can sit in my office, and we can talk. Many of you do that. We talk for a good long time, and I can get to know you, and you can get to know me. If, if you're at a 2,000-member church, it's not, even, it's not even the fault of the church. There's just no way you're going to do that. You, you're just not going to know, and so what ends up happening is because the guy who's preaching is the face of the church. He is the center of the church, and he is also removed from the church, that when they start to abuse people, when they start to have that, that authority go to their head, there is very little, if any, check on him. Because to check him is to put the church and its growth in grave jeopardy. And it's not a far thought to think that growing as a church that is already growing as a church becomes one of the most important things to your church. Your church is not founded on integrity like, Bill Hybels literally 
founded his church because he wanted to reach as many people as possible, right? which isn't a, a bad goal. But if that's your vision, then anything that's going to hinder that vision becomes very, very difficult to implement. And so if it comes to like censuring people or it comes to changing things that are for the good but are, are going to hinder growth, the pruning kind of process that everyone should go through, um, if it hinders growth at all, it's going gonna, it's gonna to find a hard time being passed and being affirmed by the people of the church. Um, we talked about how they're attractional. We talked about music. Um, the last thing that's really true of these is that they're almost all in the suburbs. They're almost all around rich or decently rich, affluent people. They're not trying to build mega churches in inner city Detroit. They're trying to build mega churches in the outskirts of L.A., um, on the outskirts of Atlanta, uh, in the outskirts of Philadelphia and places like that. Um, they're generally not, not doing these demographic studies and planting in the inner cities. Um, so they're looking not just for mostly white people, which the vast majority of these churches are filled with white people, uh, but they're also filled with white people who happen to be pretty solidly and firmly in the middle class, if not higher than that, right? So if you go to where Willow Creek is, if you live in the suburbs of Chicago, it's expensive, right? And if you're, if you're living there, then that's going to be one of the things that that's the kind of people that you're attracting. And you can tell even by Bill Hybel's leadership model that that was in, indeed the kind of people that they were attracting. One of the other problems with these churches is that because they are set up in such a way, um, they lack a gravity and a weightiness that things like um, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church have. So the Catholic Church just, they, they've changed a lot in the past 30 years, but a lot of it is exactly the same. Like you can hear the Mass in English now, but that Mass is not substantially different than what you would have heard in Latin in the 12th century. It's not that much different. And so there's something about the Catholic Church that's like stable, even if, it, even if it's not built on what we might call the firmest of grounds or something stable about that. These churches are built literally on the sand of the culture that they find themselves in, right? So their, their approach to ministry, their approach to reaching people is all built on what the people think. And the way in which they built it in the 80s and the 90s was primarily off of the idea of a mall. That this is where people are going to congregate, they're going to come in. And this is why millennials have, have run away from that. It was a consumerist mindset that they saw in people in the 80s and the 90s, they saw in their parents. And so millennials have rejected that in favor of these more traditional forms of worship because they, they viewed it as, as inauthentic. It, it was transitory. It wasn't solid. It wasn't, it wasn't something that would last in the time. And, and then because you're building your flimsy little model off of a subset of people that isn't going to stay the same, they're going to die, what you end up getting are churches that, like the Crystal Cathedral, they bloom for a while, but then they wilt because they don't have any sort of firm foundation in them. And people find out that, you know, the power of positive thinking doesn't quite work the way in which Norman Vincent Peale thought it was supposed to, and Robert Schuller told you it would, uh, you eventually lose people. And that's what a lot of these churches are doing. They, they end up losing people. Now, they still have people out there to attract, and they can still change some of what they're doing, but um, that seems to be one of the, the difficulties of it. All of that being said, we, there are a couple of things that I want to 
to pipe up as far as the, the good things uh, about these churches. One, um, while we can talk about these bad things, some of these bad things are just parts of being big churches. And there are places in the country where big churches are not a bad thing, they're a good thing, right? So if you're in New York, you know, if you're at Tim Keller's uh, Redeemer Presbyterian, which I don't know if they're big enough to be considered a mega church or not, um, if you, if you pull 2,000 people in New York, you can't plant three churches in an area that's going to pull that many people, right? There's just not, there's not room for it. Like, you could pull 2,000 people in, in, a, in a half a city block in New York. Like, that's not hard to do. So there are places, this is one of the reasons why Spurgeon did have to have a 5,000, it wasn't because he didn't want to plant other churches, it was because his church was in the center of London, right? You're, you're, there's not a lot of ground to use for that kind of stuff. And so there are, there are places where this is okay. Many of these mega churches, though, are out in the suburbs where there's plenty of place to park. There's also plenty of place to build huge parking lots as well. So I guess that kind of works both ways. Um, but it's not that these are all bad. Um, some of these churches are indeed excellent. They are doing good work. They're they are striving to do stuff that we don't necessarily do well. That attractional model can be bad, but the desire to lower hindrances to the access of the gospel by people outside is not on its face bad, okay? There is certainly a balance that, that needs to be struck, but that's not on its face bad. There's nothing necessarily wrong with serving people coffee. We make you all bring your coffee, but you're still drinking it here, right? As long as it doesn't spill, we're good with it. So, um, <clears throat> right, as long as you don't spill it, we're fine. Um, there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. Those things are, are not, those are maybe a feelings type of thing that we differ with other people on. There are certain things that are like, have some more biblical warrant to them, right? And we've talked about congregational singing and things like that. We do that because we think that it's warranted in the Bible. We think that that's right to do based on what's in the Bible. But if people want to do their special singing and they want to have a little bit more of a rock concert, there's not like a hardline verse that we go to that says that that is completely outside the realm of anything that Christians can do. There are certain doctrinal things that they just sometimes get wrong, and we're right to point those things out. But a lot of the, the things that people don't like about these sort of attractional models um, are, not, are more feelings-based than they are anything else. That can be done well, I would, I would assume. Um, it can also just easily slide into an outright abuse of that thing. Um, one of the, the, I have a professor who I, who I didn't care for for much, but he gave me two very solid pieces of advice that I always remember. Um, the first one has, is neither here nor there. The second one is what you win people to or what you win people with is what you win them to, okay? So if the focus is on the ease of Christianity and how much Christianity can, can make your life beneficial and how much it can fix your marriage and how it can handle your finances— if that's what you're winning them with, that's what you're winning them to, right? If you're winning them with this ease of life, if you're winning them with, with the, the culture that they see around them, that's all you're winning them to. And so the focus, even in the attractional stuff, has to be back to the gospel. And frankly, when I, when I was going through this, one of the things that I kept coming back to was Philippians 1, a sermon that Josh preached, which was really helpful, where he, he said, listen, there are people out there for Paul when he was put in prison who saw this as like a gap 
in the celebrity status of a Christian that they could then fill. And so they were going out and they were going to preach Christ. And they were going to preach Christ for some pretty abysmal reasons. He said, some preach Christ out of personal gain. They wanted to preach Christ to make their name great. They wanted to preach Christ in order to, to gain popularity for themselves. Now, Paul doesn't say much about the content of their preaching, but one would assume if that was the desire of their preaching, that the content of their preaching was also somewhat affected by that desire, right? I don't think that I'm off. That's not what Paul says, but it's hard for me to believe that the content of their preaching wasn't off. And yet Paul's like, I'm still thankful that they preach Christ. Like Christ is being named and that's good. So at a lot of these places, although places are, there's a huge spectrum of them. Some are going to be good churches. Some of them are going to be heretical churches that we wouldn't even consider to be churches of Jesus Christ. Um, at those places where there's not outright heresy going on, even if there is this sort of um, limp-wristed approach to the Bible where they're just not, they're not standing on the foundation of the church as much as they should and they're trying to shy away from the, the things of God, let's be thankful that there are thousands of people who have the Bible upheld, who are hearing of the name Jesus Christ, who are having put before them that he is somebody to be listened to and paid attention to. Uh, it might not be everything we want, right? It might not be everything that, that will even be fullness of the gospel. Um, but if you have somebody, and Joel Osteen's one of these guys, like, he holds up the Bible at the beginning, right? He's, he's doing that, I think. He used to do it. I don't know if he does it anymore. The guy's ripped. He can hold up like 20,000 Bibles in that one hand. I don't know if you've ever seen him. He's, he's, he looks small, but he's not. He's huge. Um, <clears throat> he holds up that Bible, and he says, hey, this is God's word, right? So even if what he's doing with the Bible is sometimes, and it is, hot trash, at the very least, there are people sitting in there who are thinking, if I have a problem, where do I go? I go to the Bible, right? Who is my help? Well, it's Jesus. And there's no doubt that he's doing that kind of stuff. Is it everything we want? No. But we should at least, we should at least be with Paul and say, when they speak well, when they speak the name of Jesus Christ, let's be thankful for that. And, and pray, listen, if, if he is, um, uh, I'm going to use this word in a non-theological sense, if he's converted to like saying, I need to be better about how I handle the word of God, and he, like, imagine the amount of people that will be moved by that, right? Sometimes what we want is the disillusion of those churches. What we ought to want is the reformation of those churches, okay? Because um, they can reach a huge number of people, and especially if there's a sort of an about face on a lot of the, the things that they do. So um, where, when you can, be thankful for those churches, um, while at the same time understanding that there's a lot, of, a lot of things for us to be a little bit skeptical about when it comes to those churches. So um, slightly early, any questions about mega churches and how we're going to become one? Um, it all starts with the music. No, it doesn't. We're not going to become one. Your, your pastor isn't, isn't a good enough preacher to become one. So uh, that's, that's good for you. <laughs> you pick just poorly enough. Uh, you'll never have to worry about these things. Um, any, yes, ma'am? I was just thinking, um, John Carver's church, Pastor Eddie Hamilton, uh, mm -hmm. 
The thing that, that I would, the thing that I would question about somebody like that is again, what do you do when, when it's no longer him there, right? Um, but that's, that's true of any church. I don't know if they've planted other churches, and I certainly um, don't think that if they did that, that they would be beaming him in, right? I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Um, my guess is that they have planted, I mean, they've got the master. I don't, I don't think that you can call that church planting, but they obviously have, have worked hard to send out pastors and stuff from there. So um, I don't know how big his church is either, like in weekly attendance or anything like that. But my guess is that it's over 2,000. So, so it would be considered a mega church, even if it didn't follow. These are generalities, right? Like these, these are not true of uh, it, it, the churches that kind of came up in the 90s that exploded. The number of, of mega churches exploded from like 30 in the world in the 1960s to like 1,800 of them today. So the, the grouping of people in these large churches just absolutely shot rocketed right up, and, and this is a lot of the reason why. Right. 30,000. Right. Right. And you can pull and you can pull stuff like that off again in those larger metropolitan areas, especially when um, people start to congregate at a church, it kind of snowballs. And in a lot of those places where there are other churches that are larger, um, you begin to have mega churches like that that are just normal regular churches. I don't know what's going on with the sound. It's not you, Al. You're it's the board? Oh, okay. Um, it's, uh, again, these, these places can run the gambit, but they're almost always in those sort of suburban areas around Dallas-Fort Worth, um, Atlanta, the, those sorts of places where there's a huge, especially in the South and in California, where there's a large, already sort of Christianized congregation. What we found is that there's, um, for people who want to be nominally affiliated with the church, it's also this great anonymous place to be. So when we would go out and do witnessing um, at our church in Louisville, when you went and asked somebody who didn't want to tell you that they didn't go to church, but they did go to church, they would just say, I go to Southeast. Southeast Christian um, was the, it's like a 25,000 person church there in Louisville. And it was the automatic answer. And, and who knows? right? You, you've got no, like, is it plausible? Yeah, I mean, it's a 25,000 person church. It's plausible that they went there. It's also plausible that they went there one time eight years ago, and they're just using that to, like, I'm a Christian, go away. Get me, get off, off of my doorstep. So, um, one of the things that these churches allow is, if you're going to allow people to come in, it's anonymous. No one can walk in this church and be terribly anonymous, right? Like, they're, and, and we talk about that being loving, but it's off-putting to some people, like, and, and you don't know, like, it's good to, to say hi to people when they come in, but if you truly wanted to be anonymous, this is probably not the place you're going to come. That's just the way that it is, so.
Yeah. What's your, can you remind me of your name again? Uh, right. Right, so there, there would be some of that simply on a more informal basis because you would likely know other people in the church that you were close to that you considered Christians. It wouldn't be under the rubric of like a formal church program or even formal church discipline, but it would just be kind of like, we're really good friends, we spend time with one another, and we go to the same church. They're going to help you and guide you and direct you and call you out when you do stupid things, right? So um, in the better of the churches, there's just a gargantuan pastoral staff. Like you're, you're talking about dozens, if not dozens upon dozens of pastors. So you got a, a church of 25,000, you've got a bunch of pastors. You've got, pastor, you got a, a hierarchy of pastors, like low-level pastors, medium-level pastors, middle management, right? It's, it's a corporation. Like you, you've got these, and you've got pastors like underneath working with groups of people. That's the only way. That it's, in other words, it looks a lot like the Roman Catholic Church. Like, it, it just, you've got a bishop, you've got the pope at top, you've got cardinals underneath him, bishops underneath him, and priests underneath. And that's, that's really the only way that you can do it. And, and again, I don't know what you're, I don't know what they're supposed to do about that, right? Like, if you're in a metropolitan area, and you're in a suburb, you can plant other churches. If you're actually in, like, New York City or in Washington, D.C. or something, it's going to be hard to be able to plant a church that has a, a place where it can meet with even a couple hundred people. And without a couple hundred people in places like that, financially, you just can't do it unless you're just meeting in someone's house. So it's, it is our modernization and, and urban movement that we've had has made these things um, difficult questions for churches to answer. But that, it's a really good point. That's one of the things I think people struggle with in mega churches is that they, they don't have, they have connections to, to some pastor, but not the Pastor? I also think that's some of the draw. Because right. it's uncomfortable to be confronted with your sin. And so you can go to church and some program mm-hmm. and no one, because no one's going to notice you or right. note the depth of your life, no one's going to call you out on Right. You can remain, you can be a member of these churches and remain almost completely and utterly anonymous. Like you can just fall into the background and, and no one will know you. Hang on, Dave. Sharon? The problem with churches that I see what she is saying, that priests, and that the more popular the pastor is, the older it's going to be, will back down from saying homosexuality is wrong. Right. They will back down from saying that Jesus is the only way to God because they want to be PC. So to me, it is a detriment to the Christian God. Right. I don't, I don't, I've never heard him say that specifically, but I'm not, I'm not denying that he does. I'm just saying, I'm, (laughs) you were just channeling Ezekiel there, so. Right. I, I, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. Like there are clearly, um, when you get churches that are known for being large, that becomes the thing. And that thing 
as an idol then subsumes everything under it. You get that with the number of these sort of pastors who are abusive in ways, um, not just sexually, but, but just in authority. Um, you get it in the dumbing down of doctrine so that people are, are easier to come in so that you're not offending them with the gospel. There are a number of ways in which that idea of growth becomes the vision that is cast and everything is subsumed to it. And so everything that, that's done that is detrimental, that could even be conceived of as detrimental to it, is automatically pushed aside. And doctrine becomes one of those things. And again, the reason why is because they're built on attracting the culture. They're not built on proclaiming to the culture the gospel. The, the flip side of that is that you then get churches that can only talk against a culture and they can't actually engage in the culture. And the only people that they're actually drawing in are people who are already Christian, right? And so there are plenty of places that are fundamentalist in nature who are, are going to be so standoffish. They're going to fight the culture in every way they can. They're at the forefront of fighting the culture and they're winning no one, no one who wasn't already one to them. So they're, they're, they're both, both sides of this have, we're, we're beset by problems everywhere. And there's no like one, this is why Jesus said, the path is really narrow that you've got to walk down, right? There's not, a, there's not a wide, easy path for us to trek. We're always, because we're so sinful, in danger of falling to the left or to the right. Like we think that we're being doctrinally really sound, but really what we're doing is being standoffish. And we think that we're being really accepting, but what we're really doing is, is, kind of dumbing down the gospel to be the therapeutic needs of people outside. And those are not, those are not easy things to avoid. They're just not. Right. <clears throat> right. Well, yeah, because they're on the radio. They've got, they've got, they're on the radio. There's plenty of them out there. The, the far right guys. There's plenty of them out there, but they're on the radio. They're not being, they're not. I mean, there's plenty of guys who are like doing the Christian nationalism thing um, that are, that are out there that are promoting that, uh, this idea that, you know, Doug Wilson, far right dude, uh, shouldn't, No, I think Doug Wilson is perverting those things for his own ends. I don't think that Doug Wilson should be listened to. The way in which that he approaches the family, the way in which he talks about the family, he is, he is one of those guys who's incredibly standoffish. And the people that he is winning, he is winning because he is standoffish, because they want to be on the side of, of somebody who is all about truth and not really about and I don't think he's all about truth, um, but not about winning people to the Lord. Um, they're the kind of people who sit around and, and have nothing but holes to pick in other people because they're not doing everything doctrinally the way they think it ought to be done doctrinally. Um, and he is one of those guys. He just absolutely is. I can't, I can't, off the top of my head, list the things that Doug Wilson has said throughout the ages that I think are inappropriate, but they're not hard to find. And they are wildly inappropriate. Like, not everything that he, not every reason why he says them is, 
but he has said some things that are just unacceptable. I mean, he is, he is the, the lost cause guy, right? He wants to explain that slavery in the South was okay because they treated their slaves well. It's not, not what he's saying. Right, but he's still, he's still upholding slaveholders in the South as good Christian people. Like, so there, there are, and that's not the only thing that he has said that I, I think people should distance themselves from him about. I'm not condemning him. I think that, I think that he will speak well on issues when he speaks of the gospel, like when he is, he is preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, when he is staying on the things of the gospel, I think that Doug Wilson is solid. And I think that he is a believer. I think that he truly does trust in the Lord from, from the things that I've heard. Um, but what we're talking about is how people engage the culture, right? That was, that was Sharon's point, And that was what I was talking about. So when you ask me like somebody on the far right and how they engage the culture and who is a far right guy, that's the first name that popped into my head. And so I don't agree with the way Joel Osteen engages the culture. What I said was that he at least at times, even if he doesn't know why he's doing it, will rep the name of Jesus Christ, right? And we can at least be praying for him and thanking him just the same way we can pray for, for anybody on the other side, right? I don't think that fundamentalist churches handle this well. I think that they're standoffish. I think that they're always fighting the culture. They're always trying to win battles in the culture, and I don't think that that's necessarily what we're called to. Sorry, we're really late, so this will be the last. I would say that they're not, I would say that both sides are not loving enough. One side wants to be overly relational with people. The other side wants to be overly, overestimates the importance of truth, but in a bad way, um, where truth is not serving a larger end, and I think that truth always has to serve a larger end. Um, either way, and I do mean this, that these things are not easy paths to tread, and we are much more likely to be bumped off on one side than we are on the other. And one of the reasons why, Michelle, last thing, one of the reasons why I talk the way I do is not because I have more love for Joel Osteen than others, but because of the nature of our church. If we need to be cautioned about anything, it's not about moving too far to the left, right? It's not about our particular churches not need to be warned about being doctrinally conscious and consistent, because we are extremely that. It is about not rightly engaging the people who are around us in love and in care and concern and being caught up in this idea of, of preaching against the world, not preaching Christ's love to the world. I, I don't doubt that there's problems on both sides, and I think that there's a lot of problems on the left, right? And you won't hear that in my preaching, but the, the warnings are there because if we fall on any side of the road, it is likely not to be that side, it's likely to be the other side. Does that make sense? So I'm warning against what I think is the more likely difficulty that we're going to hit, not the thing that is 
better or worse. So hopefully that, that helps clarify everything. Um, let's pray because the kids are all huddled over there in a corner. Hi, kids. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to pray now. Father, thank you for our children. Thank you for the word. I pray that we will be consistent to it and, and you will guide and direct us. These are difficult things, Father. Um, give us wisdom. Give us humility. Um, give us faithfulness and trust in your word. Let the truth of your word went out so that we will, we will know our Lord Jesus Christ and rightly represent him to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.